What does it mean for Christians to be created in the image of God? It starts at a really basic place, and that is of serving people out of recognition that they are made in the image of God. You know, the idea really simply is that what people ought to receive is that there are certain ways that they should be viewed and treated simply because they're people. But I think as Christians, we're called to bring a helping hand to anybody who's in need. So we serve the world around us in whatever way that we can. And we especially show that by caring for one another within the family of God. Welcome to the special Human Dignity series on the Way Home podcast. For the next several weeks, we'd like to highlight topics from my brand new book, The Dignity Revolution, where we focus on exactly what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means both for how we think about ourselves, but also how we think about the world around us. And today I'm joined on the podcast by my friend, Justin Gibney. Justin is an attorney and political strategist in Atlanta, but more importantly, he's the co-founder and president of the AND campaign. And Justin is a really great voice. He has helped Christians think through what does it mean to be pro-life and pro-justice? What does it mean to care about justice and also believe in justification by faith? Sometimes those things are seen as mutually exclusive, but he shows why those are not if you are a faithful follower of Christ. So let's join this conversation with Justin Gibney. Before we jump into this interview, I'd like to let you know that the Dignity Revolution is available for pre-order. And for a limited time, if you pre-order my book, we'd like to give you a free one-year subscription to Light Magazine. This is a terrific magazine that comes out twice a year and features really original and fresh essays and articles and interviews about important topics to the Christian life. So go to my website, danieldarling.com, click on the image for the Dignity Revolution, and you'll have instructions there on how you can pre-order my book and also get a free subscription to Light Magazine. Justin, you were the first people I wanted to talk to because, you know, just some of the ways that you articulate your Christian convictions as it relates to engaging in the public square. So I I think before we get into some of that, I would love for you to just share with some of our listeners kind of a little bit of your background, maybe in politics and kind of what led you to some of the work you're doing now. Sure. Um, So I'm an attorney by trade. Around 2007, 2008, I got into... uh, Politics got into running campaigns, so I've run campaigns for um, politicians around the state. I'm in Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I've also done uh, referendums for uh, transportation infrastructure, water and sewer infrastructure, stuff like that. And so I've also, you know, in 2012, 2016, I was a delegate for the Democratic National Convention. And just being in urban politics quite a bit and being a person of faith, I felt a kind of push to go further and further to the left on a lot of different issues that I just wasn't comfortable with. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me because when, you know, I talked to the people in my church, I talked to some of my friends around me, we're all pretty centered uh, uh, on a lot of social issues, but that didn't seem to be where the party was. And so I kind of realized that that was because there was a lack of organization among us. And so I started just seeking other out other folks like myself who were interested in, in changing that dynamic and saying, hey, we have a voice too, we're here. Initially created a group called uh, Crucifix and Politics, which was me and some mm. other 
politicos. Some people were running campaigns like me. Others were the chair of their county party, stuff like that. Just to come together at my church and just talk about the issues and how we felt about this leftward uh, push. And we all felt the same way. We didn't like it, but everybody felt like they were silenced, like they didn't want to lose their job. There just wasn't a way to let, you know, to, to voice your opinion without facing very serious consequences. But I also noticed that just within the few of us that started coming to that, talking about Jesus, talking about Daniel, you know, and how he interacted with government, uh, there was a we kind of encouraged and emboldened each other. Uh, just by being around each other. So then when we when we went to, you know, Democratic Party meetings or even on social media, people were a little more uh, bold because they knew they weren't alone. And I, I saw there was something to that. But at the same time, I didn't think the change was going to come from the political class. And so I started reaching out to kind of emerging faith leaders, young pastors on the idea of getting engaged civically a little bit more, but doing it in a more authentically Christian way. And so Ended up creating with Show Baraka and a pastor named Angel Madonado ended up creating the and campaign, uh, mm-hmm. which is really about uh, the idea that uh, we shouldn't really separate. There's a false separation between love and truth, between justice and righteousness. We think the gospel is both. And so it's Christian. It's really just Christian saying, hey, we're going to be about both justice and righteousness, compassion and conviction instead of just upholding one that's that's more authentically Christian. You know, I want to talk about that. Because I, I don't think anybody has articulated that as well as you have publicly. The idea that you can be for, uh, as you said, justice and righteousness, right? So, or justice and morality. You can be pro-family and pro-justice. Or things like you can be pro-life and pro-justice. This idea that we have to be so tribalized that we have to pick one set of issues over the other in terms of issues that we know come from Scripture. Can you speak to the reason why we feel like we're always having to choose between those and how you encourage Christians uh, to embrace both? Sure. Uh, so I think it's somewhat of a political construct. You know, it serves one interest to just focus on justice issues and ignore the other issues because on the sec- secular progressive side of it, they don't really want to talk about the moral uh, issues. And then I think on the other side, it, it helps to just talk about morality or righteousness and not focus on the justice issues, because that would mean letting go of some political capital, giving up some privileges and things of that nature. And so I, it serves a political purpose. And I think for both parties and uh, ideologies, it's in their interest to have this big separation. But for the body of Christ, uh, that really just isn't something that we should allow. In fact, uh, Ephesians 4.15 says that we should always speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we pulled that from, that that the gospel was about both. You know, Jesus told the adulterous woman, you know, he kind of freed her from uh, those who were trying to condemn her. But before she left, he said, sin no more. So go forth and sin no more. And that's really what it's about. There's a there's internal bondage, uh, which we should care about. And there's external bondage that we should also care about. And when you remove one, you actually don't have the other. So uh, we would say that. If you if you have a love that doesn't have any truth to it, then it's a love that just is formless and uh, can be made into anything. And then if you have truth without love, it's just harshness. Mm. And so to have one, you have to have the other. Can you talk about the way that our politics today is so, even just in the way we engage in politics, we're so tempted to uh, dehumanize 
people that disagree with us, uh, the way that we're kind of tribalized into defending people on our side, even if they're not good character because they're our people and we're tempted to sort of disparage people on the other side because they're on the other side. And, you know, for a Christian, you know, how do you encourage Christians to engage politics in a way that is both redemptive but also actually helps things uh, happen? I think it's by putting politics in its proper place. So for someone that spends most of his time outside of, you know, what I do at church and, and reading the Bible mm-hmm. and all those things, most of my other time on political stuff, it may sound weird to say, hey, I'm actually trying to lessen the importance of politics almost. But really just to put it in its place to say it's very important. So you should be engaged, but it's not more important than your principles. And I, I think part of the issue is that people don't really know how to deal with the most serious issue. So we can talk about civility. We can talk about being kind when it's about issues that we really don't care about, but we don't know necessarily know how to apply that on the tough issues. And Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the problem. So whether it's issues of abortion, criminal justice or whatever, if you disagree with me on this issue, you are the devil. Instead of saying, you know what? I was wrong on something before. Maybe I should just have a conversation with this person Mm -hmm. And, and we can figure it out. We have a very hard time applying those principles that keep us from hating each other. We, we, we have trouble applying those to the tough issues. And I think that's part of it. Um, we get it in principle when we're not talking about stuff that matters a whole lot to us, but not necessarily when it's something that we may even see as life, life or death. We really just don't have that uh, humility and uh, we're not very uh, gracious to others when it comes to those particular issues. Mm. That's really good. Talk to me about the way that you feel about human dignity. It seems to me like if we really take seriously what the Bible says about the dignity of all people uh, being made in the image of God, then it's going to kind of disrupt our politics in a way, right? Like we're, we have to see the dignity of the unborn, uh, but then we also have to see the dignity of the immigrant, the refugee. Uh, we have to see the dignity of uh, people of color who face oppression or opposition or, or have experiences that are different than people in the majority culture, it kind of disrupts our politics, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely should, Dan. And, that, and that's why I liked your book so much. One of the reasons I liked your book so much is because it's so hard to cut through the talking points, the false narratives and all that stuff. But human dignity um, that language is something and that under, you know, understanding what that means is something that should really we should all have common ground on. And that's mm-hmm. why I think I like the language that you use. I like thinking of it from a human dignity perspective because everyone understands that now that that what they have to do from there is not <laughs> only apply it to their issue, but apply it to other issues in which other people may be focused on. Mm-hmm. And that's so important. And when people do that, it can't help but. Uh, change the political landscape because neither side gets that perfectly right. Mm. Uh, neither side is, is is completely focused on that. Now, that speaks that should speak very clearly to Christians and some outside of Christianity. And there may be others who don't quite get it, but I think it is. And the and campaigns looks for this type of stuff and this type of language and concepts all the time that cut through people these these false narratives. And I think you've done very well with that. And once people get it, read the book and get what you're talking about it can't help but but change how they look at politics if they if they're really seeking to do it better it seems like a lot of your justice movements and i think particularly the civil rights movement kind of use that language i think of martin luther king talking about the image of god but also like 
the protest in Memphis, you know, for the sanitation workers holding signs saying, I am a man. In other words, just like, at the very least, can you recognize my personhood? Can you recognize the dignity? Was that a core feature of, uh, of the civil rights movement, you think? I would say absolutely. I mean, you gotta you have to put skin on some of these issues because when you don't have relationship with other people, it's very easy to demonize them or demonize their issue. And if you look at the civil rights movement, you know, s- some of the biggest strides that they they made was when people had to watch human beings be hit in the head. Like people had heard about it. You might hear about discrimination. It's you know, it's not all that clarity, but when you see kids being bitten by dogs and water hoses being sprayed at people, that really changed the way people were looking at it. And sometimes it was a visual thing that people needed to see. But what the visual did was show you that these were indeed people that you had to do, that you had to deal with. And it showed their reactions to it. It showed their pain. It showed the tears. Uh, it shows, you know, what families were dealing with. And, and, and I, I agree. It was all an appeal to human dignity, an appeal to our oneness under Christ and, and being the Imago Dei, being created in his image. I, I totally agree. You've been engaged in politics in a long time, and I've had some engagement at different times in, in politics. I'm finding among some Christians, there's a kind of a wariness to be involved because it's messy, because, you know, as I've said, you know, no one party, no one earthly movement. We shouldn't feel at home in any one earthly movement because we're sojourners and strangers. And yet, sometimes that can almost paralyze us from not getting involved at all. What advice do you give for people? Do you get involved in political parties to try to change them? Do you kind of withdraw, like, you know, in terms of running for office and all these different things? What what kind of advice can you give? Yeah, I I usually recommend being in a party. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people aren't in parties because they're like, they don't represent me perfectly. Well, they're not supposed to. To me, it's just a reference point. So when somebody Mm -hmm. says I'm a Democrat, that means I may agree with Democrats on more of the issues, but I don't find my identity Mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party. And that's the key. Once Christians see that it's not a place to find your identity, I think more people will be willing to say, "Okay, I can be in a party. I don't know. They're they're not my tribe necessarily, Mm -hmm. but it does make it easier for you to actually be a part of the process. A lot of Christians come and they say, well, we ended up with uh, Clinton and Trump. How did this happen? How can I vote? You know, how can I make that choice? Well, one of the things we can do to avoid that is get involved earlier in the process uh, and not just wait till, you know, until there's an election or maybe you need to get involved in uh, when they're creating the platform. Now, that's not to say that you will always have the final say, but to have some influence in that is helpful. I don't go, I, you know, I see p- political parties as as tools. Uh, it's something that you use a means to have influence on the political process and that's and that's pretty much it. Like, I'm not a big person on party loyalty, uh, because to me, if you're doing the right thing, I'm going to support you. If you're doing the wrong thing, mm-hmm. I can't support you. So I don't I don't know anything about that loyalty. But I say give heavy consideration to enter a party just to have an impact on the process, not necessarily because this is now your tribe and you must do what, you know, whatever they say or go in that direction. And it gives you the opportunity to hold them accountable and be a voice that says, actually, you're going too far. Right. And, and you should want to have some standing to be able to do that. I think that's one of the most effective ways to go about uh, being influential in the public square. To me, it's very similar to the language we use about institutions and in that, you know, on one level, you know, our institutions at almost every level have failed us. And now we see in the most recent iteration of that is the Catholic Church with the sexual abuse scandal. So people are very anti-institution, but we do need institutions for flourishing. And I it seems like that in, in our 
in our representative republic, there has to be some vehicle for people running for office and all that. So it's imperfect, but it seems that, you know, I, I heard Michael Ware say that even to people who are saying, I don't want to be part of this party anymore. I don't want to be part of this party saying, actually, no, stay in and make a difference. Is that kind of what you counsel? Absolutely. And that, that goes for um, institutions again, in general, the right response to seeing a, an institution that went wrong is to make it better. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't think you can make it better to create something to create a new institution or, you know, something that can replace it. But the whole this institution isn't perfect or it went wrong. Therefore, I'm not going to engage just doesn't make sense because you're not going to have an impact and institutions are very important. So I say try to make them better, get in there and and um, be part of that mechanism um, because it can have such a huge effect on mm. uh, on human flourishing. Tell me, like you've grown up in the church, and and how has uh, your church experience uh, kind of formed you for for your public witness? It's a good question. You know, anytime I come into the public square, I think about the people I go to church with. So I go to church. I go to a traditional Black Baptist church, and it's very. A lot of diff- different age groups, so very diverse as far as demographic, you know, demographics, things of that nature. And you get to see, you know, it, it helped me see people who didn't feel like they have a voice. And so being placed in a position where I can be a voice every time I speak or write something, I'm thinking of some of those people and what they would have somebody who represents them say. Because a lot of older, uh, some of the older folks that go to my church really see the world is is kind of getting away from them and not understanding what's going on, but having wisdom that the public square needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for me, it's instilled a need to be involved, a need to have representation, but also a need to be to be gracious, to uh, to to question society and not really feel like you have to fit in within it. Uh, it is a family and a community within itself. And although we can, you know, we can team up with other communities and things of that nature, I don't need to feel like I need affirmation from outside of that group. Right. I don't have to go into the Democratic Party and find affirmation. Um, I already have affirmation in Christ and in my church. And so I can go in there with a different perspective. And I think that's been really helpful. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And I also think, too, right, that church forms us. It forms our souls in other ways. So you're you're out six days of the week, five days of the week in the world, so to speak, and coming back to church every week just sort of with the same rituals, the same liturgy, the same music, the same, you know, gospel sort of forming us for life in the world, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's the foundation. It's that rock, right? It's what you come back to when everything else is kind of getting crazy. Uh, Sunday morning or, you know, when you go to Bible study, it should be something Somewhat familiar, still very challenging in, in mm-hmm. that you want your faith to grow, but also something that says that is kind of refreshing and gives you perspective and lets you put things back into perspective. Mm-hmm. I found that to be extremely helpful. And then, of course, all the principles that you learn within the church and uh, understanding the importance of hierarchy, uh, the importance of institution. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't have that. And I think in a way we take that for granted, but the church has always provided that for me. You've talked a lot about the, I mean, and have been really, I think, concerned about sort of uh, the structure of the family and how sort of family breakdown has really contributed to a lot of our a lot of our social ills. And of course, there's a lot of history and, and sort of background behind all that. 
But why is that such an important thing for you to talk about? Oh, because I think that's the most important institution. Um, you know, that's one that's a foundational institution um, in our society. And we do need to realize as we get into this conversation that not only does a family breakdown cause different societal issues, but because of this country's history, mm-hmm. it's caused a family breakdown. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know throughout history, the separation of families and slavery um, because of, you know, some of our welfare policies and all that, the separation of families. And then just all the things that come with oppression and making it harder for families to stay together, harder for relationships to to, to stay together. Um, and so we have to focus on both the, the things that cause our families to break down and uh, how how our families affect every other part of society. And if you have strong families, I've said, you know, I've said this before that you can have a stronger community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have stronger individuals going out into the world who can who can be assets. And so it's, it's kind of almost like a circle in the way that it works. But absolutely, we need to be paying attention to our families and also to policy and systems that add to the breakdown of, of families. Absolutely. I was just going to mention that because, you know, sometimes we'll narrowly focus on rising divorce rates and children out of wedlock and, and all the sort of negative, you know, destructive things in the family without really looking at the social structures around families, the economic pressures, education issues, and all that. And it seems like we need a more holistic look when we're talking about what to do for families. Absolutely. Um, we need we need to look at it both ways. And that's why, you know, we talk about things like paid family leave. And we can do it in our everyday lives. I mean, we get so into our jobs that maybe we are aren't paying attention uh, to how we could be helping those who we work with and helping their families and making a more healthy environment because the environment that people go into at their job, if it's unhealthy, that sometimes they take that back home. I mean, there's so many ways to get at this, but we just need to be conscious of it, praying about it and respectful of others and trying to help them along the way. Yeah. You you know, so much of our time, and and maybe this is just me because I'm focused a lot of times in our jobs here and what we're uh, national news and sort of what's going on in DC. But it seems like a lot of this work can be done by ordinary people in local communities, right? That we should pay attention to the national issues, we should vote, we should think about those things because they do impact every, you know, everyday people, but it seems almost sometimes we get caught up in the drama and the soap opera of what's going on in DC when we can really do some really good work in our local sphere of influence, right? Yeah, I think about that all the time. I mean, there is not a shortage of opportunities to spread the gospel or just just spread human flourishing. I mean, there are so many, so many things churches can do and other people can do that are fairly simple that will help somebody's life on a daily basis. I mean, one of the organizations I'm involved with is called Paw Kids here in Atlanta. And this is really two churches coming together to provide uh, after school programs and summer programs for underprivileged children. And on a daily basis, if you just stop by there, drop off food, drop off clothes, help a kid read, that goes so far. Just tell a kid, encourage them to let them know they can do it. I mean, some of these kids just don't hear somebody say, wow, you are really smart. You're, you're really going to be something someday. Mm. It means the world to some of these kids, and we just don't take the time to do it. Uh, but honestly, that can change somebody's life. One phrase mm-hmm. uh, can change somebody's life, and we need to concentrate on some of those small things, too, that are there's plenty of broken people, plenty of people that that need that help. 
And if we focused on that a little bit more, I think we'd we'd feel better about ourselves. We wouldn't see these huge because sometimes what we do is we take on these huge challenges and then we're like, man, I don't see any difference. <laughs> sometimes when you look at the smaller ones, it's helpful because you can see a difference fairly quickly and it's 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 uh, substantive. Yeah, or we think I'm tweeting about this really important issue, therefore I'm doing something, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's really good. Well. Justin, I really appreciate you joining me, and I really appreciate the work you're doing with Ann Campaign and really hope people um, pay attention to what you're doing. If people wanted to learn more about you, what, what would be a good way? Uh, you can go to theandcampaign.com, theandcampaign.com. You can learn more about us. We've we're got some platforms that are about to launch within the next month or so. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at andcampaign and just you know, follow our messaging, uh, spread the word. But those are two ways to get a better understanding of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. All right. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. And I appreciate you writing The Dignity Revolution. It really helped me. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster, and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.